My name is Chad, and I'm one of the pastors here, and it's a privilege to be preaching to you this morning from God's Word. So every morning I eat the same thing for breakfast. I'm sure if Johnny was here, oh, Johnny is here. Any guesses what I eat every morning for breakfast? It's very simple. It's oatmeal. I eat instant oatmeal every morning for breakfast, and I add a little dry nuts and some honey on it and some milk just to spice it up a little bit. But the reason I, I do that, the reason I eat something that's microwavable is because it's quick and easy. We like things to be quick and easy. We, we like things to happen instantly. And so I share this with you not because I want you to know what I eat for breakfast, but because like many of you, we value our time, we value our agenda, and so we want things to happen quickly so we can move on to what's next, to what we want to do. Now some of you might be cooks and you might enjoy cooking breakfast. I'm not. That's not what I enjoy doing. And so I find myself oftentimes recognizing that my value for my time and my agenda is actually very self-centered. It's very self-focused. That it's more of a result of me being lazy than it is me being needing to move on to what's next. And so we often struggle with this frustration that if what we are wanting to have happen or what we're seeking to accomplish doesn't happen quickly, that that frustration can become disappointment. And that disappointment can lead to an internal struggle where we are trying to force things to happen. And so we favor things that are quick and easy. For example, did you know that Amazon is currently hiring to release uh, a new program called Amazon Air? And Amazon Air will do drone drops within 30 minutes right on your front steps. Quick and easy. You select the tennis shoes you want, bam, here comes the drone, autonomous, right there on your front porch 30 minutes later. And so we love getting what we want, and we love getting it quickly, like a drone drop. But as I was reading our passage and preparing for this sermon this morning and thinking through just who we are as people, quick, easy, immediate, instantaneous, microwavable, drone drops, I started to realize that we oftentimes treat the blessing of our sovereign God in the same way. So while we're right to look to God as the source of blessing, we often want his blessing to arrive just as quickly and just as easily as a microwavable breakfast or as Amazon Air drone drop. And when God doesn't meet my expectations or my time frame, we begin to doubt his goodness or his sovereignty and we begin to even disregard or overlook the blessings he's already so graciously given us. And so as time keeps passing, our fear can turn into disappointment. And our disappointment can turn into bitterness 
And that bitterness can take root and spill into our other relationships, causing strife, causing discord, causing all kinds of conflict. And so this morning, we are all asking God for different blessings in our lives. He's our Father. He's our Heavenly Father. And so we look to Him to provide. Perhaps this morning you're asking God to bless you with very good and very big things, such as a family or a spouse. Or perhaps you're asking God to bless you with steady work or a fulfilling career. Or perhaps you're looking to God to bless you or, excuse me, to bless one of your friends or family members with the ultimate blessing, a relationship with with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And so how do we as God's people, how do we how do we react when our blessing goes unanswered? How do we respond when it seems for months or years or decades our request, our prayer goes seemingly unanswered? These are very real struggles that we have as we walk with our faithful God in this broken world. So today, as we continue our study in Genesis, we're in 25, we're going to transition to the generations of Isaac, which is really the story of Jacob. We're going to be looking now at Jacob for the next several weeks. And in this first look at Jacob, we're going to talk about the sovereign blessings of God in the lives of his children. So the focus this morning will be on the sovereign blessings of God. And we will be in 25... Chapter 25, verses 19 through 34, which focuses on two episodes, the first two episodes in the life of Jacob. And these episodes are intended to teach us. This isn't just history. This is theological history. God has given us this so that we can learn and grow. And so they're intended to teach us regarding God's sovereign blessing, how we regard, how we consider God's sovereign blessing. And these things matter because how we regard or consider God's sovereign blessing can either feed or starve off conflict. There's this correlation between how we respect or respond to God's blessing and conflict in our lives, as well as it can either accelerate or stunt our spiritual growth, our maturity. So we're going to be looking at that this morning and putting it all together. Our question is, how do we regard God's sovereign blessing in order to minimize conflict and maximize our maturity? And so turn with me to Genesis 25, where we're going to be looking at God's dominion, his, his realm as king. And then we're going to be looking at Jacob's striving And finally, Esau's disregard. So as we begin, we'll be reading from verses 19 through 23. And here we are going to see that God blesses his people as he sovereignly chooses. God blesses his people as he sovereignly chooses. So in verse 19, begin with me through 23. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son, Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, 
because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer. And Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her. And she said, It is thus. If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. So stop there with me. What we see first is God's sovereign blessing. Look at verse 21. It says that the Lord granted Isaac's prayer and Rebekah his wife conceived. Now if you recall, Rebekah like Sarah was barren. And the Lord caused Rebekah to conceive, making this a clear act of sovereign blessing. This is a blessing from God. That this was of the Lord is explicit in verse 21, where it says, Isaac prayed to the Lord and the Lord granted his prayer. But it is also stressed in the text in another way that I want to show you. This portion of the text focuses more on the state of Rebekah and less on the role of the patriarch Isaac, which is significant. It was Rebekah who was barren and conceived, verse 21. It was within her, the children struggled together, verse 22. And rather than the text using the more common phrase, Isaac fathered the children, which is used of Abraham in verse 19, Abraham fathering Isaac, it says that Rebekah, verse 26, bore them. Rebekah bore them. By focusing on Rebekah's barrenness, her conception, her pregnancy and delivery, the text is showing us that the Lord sovereignly blessed Rebekah and Isaac with these twins. Isaac could do nothing within his power to change the circumstances except pray to the Lord and trust that he and his wife would conceive as he loved her. So the text goes on to support that God blesses as he sovereignly chooses in that he fixed the birth order of the twins. And he chose to bless Jacob the younger over the older. So look at verse 23. It says, The, the one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. So with this prophecy, what the Lord is doing is he's declaring that the second born will be stronger and will be served by the firstborn. This is significant in ancient Near East culture. Most commonly, the birthright would go to the firstborn. He would carry on the family name and he would receive the double inheritance. So in this context, the birthright would be to carry on the family name, to receive a double portion of the birthright, but most significantly, the blessing of the Abrahamic covenant would go to the firstborn. But God sovereignly chose Isaac, or Jacob, the second born, for this blessing. And so it doesn't say why he chose Jacob, only that he did choose Jacob. Yet another demonstration of God's right as king to sovereignly bless as he chooses. So today, as New Testament believers, does God sovereignly bless his children today? Yes, he does. In one sense, as we talk about God's blessing, it's, 
It's a past tense thing. He has blessed all believers in Christ. Ephesians 1.3 says, God the Father has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's all of us. And in 4.7 of Ephesians, we see that God the Son gives grace gifts or spiritual gifts as he chooses. To each of us, he has chosen to bless us with a spiritual gift. So these verses from Ephesians exemplify a few key aspects about these past tense blessings that we as believers have all received. First, it's past tense. Second, it's complete and none of us lack anything in Christ. Third, it's for all believers. And fourth, it is spiritual. And it's for the purpose of knowing him, loving him, serving him, and glorifying him. And again, fifth, just to reiterate, it's his sovereign choice. We either have speaking gifts or serving gifts, to sum it up. And whichever gift it is you have, God chose to give that to you, and it's his good gift to you. But these spiritual gifts are not the totality of God's blessing upon us as New Testament believers. All gifts that God gives to us, his children such as a spouse or children or steady work or fulfilling careers or opportunities to serve him abroad or in full-time vocation, whatever it is that he's given you that is good, it's his sovereign blessing on your life. So these ongoing blessings are like spiritual blessings in that he chooses, but they're dissimilar in that there's no guarantee, there's there's no promise that we will all receive the same gifts from his hand. However, just because they're not guaranteed, that doesn't prevent us as his children from presenting our requests, making our needs, our desires known to him, and asking him to consider granting us these desires, to give us, to bless us what our heart wants as his child. And so with that, we move into our second point, which is Jacob's striving. Jacob's striving. We're going to be looking in verses 24 through 34. And we're going to see that faithless striving for God's blessing leads to strife. Faithless striving for the sovereign blessings of God leads to strife. So our first point simply established that God has the right to sovereignly bless. That's his right as king. We are now going to look at our response as his children to these blessings, to his right to bless. So read with me from verses 24 through 34. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called him Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, 
and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear it to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Now, beginning back in verse 22, the text portrays Jacob as one who strives for God's sovereign blessing, both before and after the prophecy, which we saw in verse 23, that the older would serve the younger. In verse 22, the word struggled together, it's a violent term used in Judges 9 to describe the forceful smashing of a skull. So this is, this is the turmoil is great, the conflict is great going on in Rebekah's womb for that divine blessing. So what we see is Jacob striving for the birthright and this striving led to fighting here, sibling, sibling fighting, but this strife, this conflict would continue. He wanted the birthright given to the firstborn, so he strove for it. This striving and strife continued even as the twins exited the womb. Look in verse 26, where we see that his brother, Jacob, came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Now, the name Jacob in Hebrew sounds a lot like the word heel, and it calls attention to his heel-grabbing activity or his striving to be first. The name is also, also closely related to the verb to deceive or to cheat, and so we put these together, and Jacob is commonly called the heel-grabber in the sense that he is trying to pull towards him that which he craves, that which he desires. And so this name to cheat or to deceive will come through in the action of his manipulation of his older brother in verses 29 through 34. So in those verses, 29 through 34, Jacob's scheme to obtain the birthright, it demonstrates a couple things. First, it portrays Jacob as one who doubts God. He doubts that God's sovereign blessing, which he promised him will come to fruition or will come as he wants it to. And so this doubting, which we see in verse 31, is made clear in the inability of Jacob to wait. In verse 31 and 33, the word now, it's used twice. And it's used twice to emphasize Jacob's strong-handed demand upon his brother and his impatience to wait on God to deliver. So he considered, yes, God promised, but he considered there would be a chance God would not deliver on his promise. So he took matters into his own hands. These this scene, this calculation of Jacob, shows it was something he had long considered. 
He had sized up his brother and waited for the right moment to exploit his weakness. It's really a preview into the whole life of Jacob, the heel grabber. Specifically, Jacob is repeatedly characterized as a man who doubts God, which leads to this striving or this desire to help God. And in helping God bless him, it leads to further strife. So this striving and strife was foreshadowed in the womb with this violent clashing, and it becomes clearer and clearer, both in this scene with his brother and later on in his life. Faithless striving so often leads to strife in our own lives today. A comical example is every time I try to help one of my daughters put on her shoes, knowing that she can do it, I know she can do it. She wants to do it, but she just takes so long. And so I have to help her along by putting on those shoes, but it happens without a doubt a huge temper tantrum ensues. She melts down. Strife develops between the two of us. She's crying. I have to forget whatever it is I'm trying to do and instead console her, give her back her shoes, and apologize. Our impatience, our striving to bring about something good that we want, rather than being patient or trusting, it brings strife. So in what ways does our faithless striving for God's blessing within the family of God cause strife? One not uncommon situation that I found myself in, perhaps you have as well, is our desire to bring God's blessing into other people's lives. We want them to experience the blessing of peace or the blessing of joy, whether it's in their family, as a spouse or a parent, or whether it's in their workplace. We think we know what the problem is. We think we know how to fix the problem quickly. And so we give our unsolicited advice. When what ends up happening is they become annoyed with us or they might just write us off and because they're put off by your insensitivity and your pride. This type of faithless striving, instead of recognizing that God's probably already at work in his child's life in this circumstance. I'm sure God's fully aware of the problem and his spirit is doing a work in that person. So why don't you just be a faithful listener and a faithful prayer partner for them instead of striving, grasping, pulling, tugging to bring that blessing into their life and ultimately just bringing strife. So the nation of Israel, like Jacob rarely trusted God to provide the blessing he promised. For the nation he promised blessing as they simply obeyed the Mosaic Covenant. They instead sought to secure it through seeking other gods and through manipulating those other gods. And as Moses was recording this episode in the life of Jacob... It seems one lesson he intended to teach the nation, which is still very applicable for us today, is that God alone is the source of the, the sovereign blessing, and we are to faithfully look to him, waiting on him and trusting in his sovereign goodness to give according to his purposes. 
About this text here, this scene, a question that's often asked, maybe not so much here in the West, but in Ethiopia, it was a common question. Did Jacob do right in securing the blessing through trickery? Or was Jacob's trickery of Esau a part of God's plan to secure the blessing? Did God need Jacob to do that? The short answer is no. No, God didn't need Jacob to do that. Instead, what we see in this event is simply the truth of God's prophecy revealed in the life of Esau. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. Verse 23. In verse 27, Esau is described as a skillful hunter. But ironically, Jacob was the more skillful hunter of the two. He baited his trap for the hungry Esau, and he caught his prey. By so readily and easily falling into this trap, Esau demonstrates that he was, in fact, the weaker person. He was controlled by his appetites. What's more, although it was Jacob who served his brother the stew in verse 34, Jacob served his brother the stew, it would be Esau who would end up serving his brother as head of the family. So to be clear, even without this baiting and this trapping, Esau would have voluntarily given up the birthright, just as his character was demonstrated in this scene. The event did not secure the exchange of that birthright. Nothing can override the hand of God. The event simply demonstrated the truth of God's prophecy. Jacob did not have to strive, but only wait on what God had promised. And this leads us to our next point as we look at this episode here with Esau and Jacob. It's Esau's disregard. Esau's disregard. Rejecting God's sovereign blessings to immediately satisfy our appetites stunts our maturity in the family of God. When we, like Esau, reject the sovereign blessing of God to appease, immediately meet our appetites, it stunts our maturity. In verses 29 through 34, we see Esau had total disregard for the sovereign blessing of God. This passage paints Esau actually in a terrible light because it is his frivolous treatment of the birthright, a birthright that would bring blessing to the world that demonstrates his character. His frivolous treatment of the birthright compared to something as immediate and as minute as a meal. We see it twice mentioned in verses 29 and 30. That Esau was exhausted. And in verse 32, Esau abruptly declared, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? By announcing the value of his birthright to be less than the food he craved, he demonstrated his disregard for God's sovereign blessing. Also in 32, Esau didn't even call it his birthright. He simply called it a birthright. The point is, he dismissed the far superior for a short-term instant gratification. 
so monumental was Esau's exchange here. That in verse 30, it says that he and his descendants would forever be known by a new name, Edom. Edom, or the Edomites, are the nation or peoples that God prophesied in verse 23. And Edom means red, which is a reference to the red stew he prized over his birthright. Esau's unimaginable folly brought about the shameful changing of his name and the name of all of his descendants. He and his descendants would forever be known as the infamous name Red, as a reference to his disregard for the birthright, all for a meal. Hundreds of years later, the nation of Edom would in fact be enemies of God's people, the nation of Israel. Even in that time, they continually displayed a disregard for God's blessing. They had no use for the blessing of God. They wanted immediate results. They wanted action. Incredibly, this low view of Esau gets even lower. It gets worse for him in verse 30, where Moses goes so far as to depict him as a hungry animal controlled by his appetites. The ESV in verse 30 translates this, let me eat. It's the Hebrew word, la'at. But other translations, such as the Net Bible, translate the beginning of verse 30 as, feed me, feed me. This idea of feed me connected with la'at, it's a term used for stuffing food in the mouth of livestock. What Moses is doing by depicting Esau as an animal, controlled by his appetites, willing to forego the long-term blessing of God, he's picturing him as a profane man. That is someone who has total disregard for the things of God. He was like an animal controlled by his appetites, so much so that he would do anything to satisfy them. Verse 34 makes it explicitly clear. In verse 34, it simply says, he despised his birthright. He despised it. That's a strong term. He considered the blessing of God worthless compared to satisfying his immediate and his material needs and wants. Now, we would never do this. This is not us. This is Esau. We are God's children. We have been blessed. We would never spurn his blessings to satisfy our material urges. But how often are you like me in the sense that it's time to spend with the Lord. This is the time you set aside. This is your quiet time, whatever you want to call it. But you're just going to check your emails first. You're, you're going you're gonna to watch the highlights from the game last night. Or you got to check the news or the stock market, whatever it is. You give up that time with the sovereign for the screen time. That screen time pulls at our heart. It's this desire we have to immediately satisfy something in us, a curiosity. Perhaps we just want to be entertained. And so rather than enjoying this blessing 
of dwelling with God in his word and through prayer that we can be his children and come before him. We, like Esau, let that go. And we grab the screen. And we let that screen take us 20 minutes down the road before you realize, oh goodness, I better get back to my time with God. Prayer and Bible reading is important. But maybe for you, it's not one of screen time versus time with the sovereign. Maybe it's something else. But the point is, there is always something else at work in our hearts tugging on us, asking us to disregard God's blessing in order to meet that appetite that we have within us. The struggle is real and the struggle is strong. When we choose to immediately satisfy those wants those cravings at the cost of valuing our spiritual blessing, we are stunting our maturity. We are stunting our maturity as God's children. We do this because we are valuing something. We are placing in our hearts the, the, the privilege of something less than God. And we're giving it a place of prominence in our hearts. That is stunting our maturity as God's children. And we all struggle with that because of the flesh. The flesh is very much so alive and real. This self-centered desire to satisfy what it is I want and to do it as quickly and as easily as possible. So if like Esau, we struggle to choose the superior over the temporal, which we do. Or if, like Jacob, we often strive to wrangle into existence God's sovereign blessing, which we do. How are we to regard God's sovereign blessing? How do we regard his sovereign blessing in such a way to minimize conflict and maximize our maturity in God's family? We are to recognize and respect God's sovereign blessing recognize for what it is and respect it for what it is, God's sovereign blessing. Did you notice in, while we read through this text how long Isaac waited for God to consider and to respond to his prayer for Rebekah to conceive? In verse 20, jump back up to 20, it says Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to be his wife. 40. And then skip down to verse 26. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore him. That's 20 years. 20 years of waiting and trusting. 20 years of praying. 20 years of disappointment. 20 years of fear and doubt. But do you know what he was doing in these 20 years? Was he, like Jacob, grasping for the blessing by helping God bring about an heir through other means? No, he didn't do that. Did he, like Esau, disregard the sovereign blessing of his wife for another who would provide the seed immediately? No, he didn't do that either. In 21, we see again that Isaac prayed to the Lord. Now, I imagine this prayer continued throughout that whole span. The point is, he recognized and he respected the sovereign blessing of God. And as Christians, friends, we don't have to grasp 
for God's blessing. Because our triune God brokered an exchange far more shocking than Esau swapping his divine privilege for some red stuff. The Lord's great exchange is God the Son willingly taking our place as guilty sinners and bearing the wrath of God the Father, paying our penalty on the cross through his death that we might be forgiven, that we might be declared righteous, that we might be reconciled to God, the sovereign blesser. And as his children, we have received these blessings that we could do nothing to earn, not one thing. We were dead in our sins. We were at enmity with God. We were even under the influence of Satan. But God made us alive together with Christ when we trusted in him for the forgiveness of sins. So because of Christ, we have been blessed. And any good blessings we desire today, we can look to our sovereign Father and wait on him to consider our request, whatever it might be. Consider our request and we wait for him to answer yes, no, or wait. As the sovereign blesser, as a good God, this is his choice. And it's ultimately for our good. And that's hard to grasp, but it's ultimately for our good, however he answers, because he knows us and he loves us and he's for us. So please hear me. I know that many of us this morning have tremendous desires, tremendous longings for God to provide something very, very good. So please don't think that I'm simply trying to spiritualize away your loss or your pain or your aching. Your feelings and desires are very real and they're very powerful. I only hope to show you a way forward, a tangible way forward of asking God and waiting on God, a way forward of gratitude and trust, a way forward that minimizes conflict and maximizes our maturity. The way forward is to recognize and respect the sovereign blessing of God. So in closing, as I, as I thought through this passage, we see two negative illustrations of what not to do. But as I thought through this passage, I really wanted to bring to light a person that embodies these traits, that embodies this attitude. And my mind continually returned to the prophetess Anna in Luke 2, verses 36 through 38. She was present during the presentation of baby Jesus to the Lord God as the firstborn male. Now, Anna was a faithful woman of God, and she had been widowed for 84 years. It's estimated that at this time, she was 105 years old. So she was well acquainted with loss and loneliness, disappointment and grief. But in these three little verses that she gets in Luke, she is pictured as the worshiper of God par excellence. 
one who sought the Lord night and day through fasting and prayer. And the Lord in his grace and sovereignty blessed her with the immense privilege of declaring to the temple worshipers that the Messiah had come. The redemption for Jerusalem was upon us. And so as we today experience and navigate the brokenness of this world, loss, grief, hopes, dreams, whatever it might be, and as you wait and depend, and as you humbly ask God to bless you according to your requests, may our hearts also long more and more for the fulfillment of a one-of-a-kind blessing that God has given us. Our blessed hope when the Lord Jesus returns for us and takes us to be with him forever. When he makes all things new and all the brokenness, all the pain, all the struggle, it'll be no more. And we will be with him on a new earth. And this new earth and our new bodies and everything will be right. It'll be as it was supposed to be. It'll be whole. And so that's my prayer for us. As we navigate in this broken world. Praying to our sovereign God. Trusting in our sovereign God recognizing and respecting the sovereign blessing of our God. Let's pray. Father, we are your children in Christ. Those of us who have trusted in your Son, we have been blessed. And we thank you. We thank you for the blessed hope that we have when Christ returns and makes us and all things new. Between the here and then, Lord, May we look to you, may we trust in you, and may you comfort us as you sovereignly answer our requests, however it might be for our good. I pray that you would make us people who are able to recognize and respect your sovereign blessing. May we be people who strive to build one another up who strive to be like Christ, not because of our striving and strength, but because of the Spirit who works in us and those God-given desires to yield to Him and His work being clear and clear in our actions, our attitudes, in our relationships. So help us to be like children, your children who look to you and who trust you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.